Hidden Greatness is an online podcast that discusses the hidden power of a subconscious mind and looks at how talented people use it to manifest their conscious reality. The show will feature individuals who have become champions in their respective careers, looking at dark to light times in their lives and how they manage to find the strength to navigate their way to greatness. Today's guest holds the British records for the 3, 5, 10 and 20 kilometre race walk. He also holds the world race walk records in the mile, indoor 3K and outdoor 3K. He's a six-time British champion, a Commonwealth Games silver medalist, and he was infamously disqualified at the London 2017 World Championships. He's the first openly gay athlete on the British track and field team. He suffered from a mental health issue that ultimately led to trying to take his own life. But fortunately, he's with us now to share this story and tell us just how we made race walking sexy. It's the wonderful Tom Bosworth. Hi, Tom Bosworth. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me, Annie. How are you? Yeah, very well. Good, good. Okay, well, welcome to Hidden Greatness. How did race walking come about? <laughs> Take us back to the Tunbridge Wells days. Yeah, yes, yeah. So uh, I joined Tunbridge Athletics Club because my sister um, basically had a friend who did this weird race walking thing. So my sister started um, and I was taken along with by, by my mum. And I could either sit in the car or I could go out and do something. So uh, I joined like a, a generic group for, I think I was 10 or 11. Uh, so I tried a bit of everything. That young? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. But my sister would have been about 13. So um, yeah, I, I just tried a bit of running. Like long jump was one of my favourite. Long jump? Yeah. Tom, long jumping? Yeah, honestly, <laughs> th- these limbs had a little bit of a spring, but but I, I was uh, I actually really enjoyed trampolining and gymnastics before all that, so I kind yeah, of had a bit, were, bit more coach, spring right? to me. Yeah, yeah. So I'm also well, I haven't I haven't coached for years, but when I was like 18, I became a trampolining coach as well. So um, athletics was never my go-to. It was never something I have thought of ever taking seriously. Just literally tried. A number of events was pretty rubbish at them all and uh, just kept doing it to stay fit awesome awesome so what other sport did you compete at did, did you enjoy football cycling are there any other sports that you participated in um mostly just the trampolining uh me and my dad would jump on the bike uh we'd go for bike rides together but you know we never really were that much of a sporty family mm-hmm. um so I was literally down at Tunbridge Athletics Club once or twice a week and and that was it. My parents weren't that sporty, um, but they, they they both they encouraged both me and my sister to be active and, and go outside rather than sit in front of the PlayStation or whatever. And, uh, and yeah, so I guess I was just generally quite fit, but yeah, never thought a sport could be my life. Oh, okay. So with walking, so for the people who don't know what the ins and outs about the event walking it is, can you just break it down to us? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like a lot of my training is like a marathon runner, a ten k runner, but the specifics are with the, the the there's kind of two parts to the rule that means we're walking rather than running, and that's maintaining contact with the ground. Um, and that's judged by the human eye. It's quite an important bit with nowadays technology and everybody jumping on social media saying all the walkers are runners because you see a picture or a video with us with both feet off the ground. No, there are a lot of snitches. Yeah, yeah. Why don't we want snitching for? Yeah, I know. It's uh, like as soon as people like give it a go and try and the other part of the rule I should say is um, you have to land with a straight leg. So that's okay. got to be one of the most unnatural movements, uh, which is what really is the difference between walking and running. Um, so landing with a straight leg immediately limits kind of all your, well, it, there is no kind of power off that right. that, that front okay. leg. It's all the push off at the back. And then you have to maintain contact with the ground or so it, so it looks basically. And, uh, you know, we, we, we often get a lot of stick on social media after big races and so on, or, or British champs or anything like that, because people say, oh, look, here's a picture of Tom or somebody with both feet off the ground rather than actually then if you go and watch race walking it's you can clearly see it's yeah. a completely different movement to running talk about your career and um you know when you first started out junior level and then senior level yeah i moved to leeds 
uh, Beckett University in 2009 because okay. I had literally that year made the GB team at a small um, European Walks uh, Cup, European Race Walking Cup. Uh, so I, I was 19 and as a junior, you compete over 10K. Okay. So I made that um, because over the last few years in my late teens, I'd started to, you know, I guess stopped growing. And so I kind of grew into a bit of speed and uh, managed to start walking like I think about 44, 45 minutes for 10K, which qualified me for, for this tournament. And to be honest, I thought this is the highlight of my life, of my <laughs> career. And and I had no direction after that. You know, I uh, I was working in, in my local pub. Um, my dad wanted me to get a job. I was training pretty much every day because I had nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was... It kind of fell into, into becoming a full-time athlete and uh, making these champs or making these teams and that's how I ended up at Leeds Beckett where my coach Andy Drake was given kind of a position to kind of rebuild race walking back 10-11 years ago. And your first international major championship um, tell us what was that like? Um, so literally a year later from making my f- first GB mm-hmm. team in 2009 I for race walk yeah, yeah 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 I made uh the Commonwealth Games uh in Delhi, in Delhi of course in did you get Delhi Valley not until after my race oh that's all right then. yeah because <laughs> I think I think as an athlete you focus 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 as soon as you compete you don't care okay, so yeah. it was kind of I stopped using hand sanitizer and just, just chilled out oh because so you just... want to die then no <laughs> <laughs> not quite but like I was 20 years old and I was just like Yes, got the first big championship under my belt. Don't need to worry about it. And uh, yeah, so kind of just switched off. But it was just a dream to make it um, uh, to represent England, obviously, mm-hmm. at Commies. Everybody at home knows what the Commonwealth Games is. And, yeah. and they see it kind of second to the Olympics as well. Because it's a, a, a multi-event, it? yeah. isn't it? Yeah. People have heard of that over the world mm-hmm. championships or European championships. So yeah, that that was awesome. And and. I finished 11th. Uh, I was never in contention for a medal. Uh, Commonwealth walking has always been very strong because of the Indians, the Australians. Um, so just to go and be there was fantastic. But I still like uh, probably six or eight minutes off where I am now. Um, and so I was still a long way away from, from kind of competing at the highest level. So after 2010, where did the shift then come to be like, okay, well, you know, I've gone to my first major championship because I always say, um, like, for example, the shift for me came in my first, my first championship as well was Commonwealth Games in 2006. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I remember going there and being in Australia and I was literally, I was so sick. I was like excited, but I was like sick, you know, because I'm just like, oh my gosh, it's like MCG, like 80, 90,000 people. Um, and it kind of happened by accident as well. So I only went for relay, ended up doing the hundred and the four by one, which we medaled in. And that was because it was my first taste, my first championship and my first medal. I was like, oh, I want more of this. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's usually the same for, you know, everyone who makes a team. So where did the shift come for you then moving on to the next year or two? Yeah, a 100% it was, it was overwhelming to be in that. Uh, that kind of Team England environment, especially with all the other sports. Like I, did, yeah. I, I barely knew anybody in the athletics team, let alone then everybody else. Um, and so the, the problem, I, I guess, is stepping up from 10K to 20K. Um, this is where keeping a lot of race walkers uh, going is, is often a, a challenge in our country because you obviously go from 10K as a junior, then you start competing at 20K. Um, and so you you can go from a very good junior uh to basically starting a new event yeah and that can be quite hard to kind of overcome and i was a very average junior and then made these commonwealths which were a really nice step but then it took me basically three more years after that uh you know i did target world champs in 2011 uh came you know i was three minutes off the qualifying time 2012 came around and home olympics just changes everything for everybody so i did pb by about three minutes Awesome. Missed the Olympic qualifying time by 19 seconds. Over 20K is like, yeah, <sighs> yeah it, that was heartbreaking. But I was 22 and I say it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me because, again, I don't think I ever thought I was able to get to that level. So just getting to kind of on the edge of, of being really competitive. Yeah. If I've gone to London 
finished mid-pack somewhere. I'd been an Olympian, done a home games. I'd have achieved everything I probably thought I could. Mm-hmm. And who knows whether I'd still kept going, if you get what I mean. Yeah. So not making London might have been the biggest, the best thing that didn't happen to me. And yeah. so it really gave me a kick up the backside to be like, right, next time you're going to go and just obliterate the qualifying time. Don't worry about it. And so following year, Moscow, I got about five B standards, but didn't get the A and I wasn't picked. Five Bs? Yeah, so I was I was consistent as hell. <laughs> I see. But Consistent and persistent. Yeah, but at that point, I, I thought, you know, I've done everything I can, mm-hmm. but now it, it's all on me. Mm-hmm. I need to stop being on the edge and go and, uh, and kind of make that next step up. And 2014 was the year I did that and started. I came really close to the 20K British record. I'd set most of the other British records below 20k by mm-hmm. then. And uh, what was it? Zurich Europeans. Yes. Finally, um, I got got my place on the team. Oh, I, I sm- smashed the qualifying time. <laughs> but what, because race walking's just been kind of, we haven't really had anybody. We, we've had one very good senior woman in nearly 10 years, I'd say. Um, up to, uh, yeah, about 2014 we were really lacking in, in international quality. And so we hadn't had a trial race either. So even though we compete over 5K at the British outdoors, yeah. it doesn't count as a trial for walkers um, because it's not the Olympic or world distance. Yeah. So pre-2014, we never had the chance to be automatic. Mm-hmm. So I don't know whether I would have made Moscow if we'd had a trial yeah. and I'd finished first or second because I probably would have finished first or second with the B standards would have made any difference. But from 2014, my coach and so on made sure that we had a trial and nobody could miss out for any other reason than not being good enough. Okay. So, you know, going back to how we started, how we opened off rather, this is where you actually, because you were, you know, one of the, you know, up and coming athletes on the team who were actually doing really, really well, you know, getting the standard, making teams, this is where, like, you basically made it sexy over the last, <laughs> over the next couple of years, because you see the transition period. So when you started in 2014, you know, there, there was other athletes on the team, you know, like um, Dominic King, who was, you know, other athletes who were, you know, doing well competitively for GB Walkers. But then Tom Bosworth came on the scene and it was like, okay. Because then the records came year after year, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I, I got to a point where I was competitive over 20k so when you look at my world rankings and so on it 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 backed up the you know setting british records at um at uh the the summer championships every year i actually broke my first british record when i was 21 at over 5k in 2011 (laughs) and then did it again i think in 2014 15 not 16 but then did it again in 2017 Mm -hmm. so yeah it was just uh, and then obviously 10k and then eventually in 2016 the 20k came and so on and so yeah it was it was very exciting from 2014 onwards because Zurich and Beijing world champs I was the only walker on the team but I was trying to get to know the entire team I'm not somebody who just wants to stick around with other endurance athletes I want to be part of the team, you know. I remember yeah. you always talking to everyone <laughs> when we were around. But but the thing is, is that I'll talk to everyone on the team because I'm just sociable. Um, but, you know, sprinters like to stick with sprinters. You know, jumpers stick with jumpers. Not everyone chats to everyone. And sometimes it's well, as well, when you're new to the team, it can be intimidating. When I first made my first seniors, I'd only ever speak to sprinters. Because those are the people who I was around most of the time. And then you kind of develop this, I don't know, let's just say level of confidence where you can actually have conversations with people around dinner time, lunch, or, you know, when you're sitting around having a and conversation. I think if I was 20, 21, like when I first made Commonwealth, I would have been far more shy. Mm-hmm. But because, you know, I, I was entering into my mid-20s, I had got a bit more confidence and I knew I was good enough to be there as well because I had those years of not quite hitting the qualifying time or not being picked. So I knew I I deserved to be there. I knew that people didn't know who I was or what race walking was either. I told you you made it sexy. So, (laughs) (laughs) but going to your point, like over that, those last, probably the first 
five years of, of the last decade, it was very cliquey as a team. Mm-hmm. And what I really know is changed, changing from 2014-15 into 2016 and this probably last Olympic cycle is the team is far more a united team rather than cliques. Mm-hmm. I see so many more people from different events mixing with others, supporting other people, you know, it, it, and I really like that kind of what the British athletics team has become on athlete level, at least, you know, I feel like there's a real unity there and which I don't think I saw so much, um, maybe because I was newer to the team, maybe not, but it definitely from, from the Rio Olympics, I, I saw a real change. So take us through 2016 because that was finally your first Olympics. Yes. (laughs) How was, how was that for you? What was it like being there? Did you enjoy the experience? And obviously the big one that happened post performance. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, everything from kitting out, which took about six hours if to get all kit, if not longer. But to be, but just it explain awesome. the experience for people who don't know, because I can talk about it all day because I've done three Olympics. Yeah. And each kitting out experience is different, but for someone who was making the team for the yeah. first time. It's, you know, you basically rock up to this huge warehouse where, which is set out in, into a maze of different compartments, rooms and, and bits where you kind of try on all your kit from race kit to the to the opening closing ceremony stuff and, casual. and yeah casual wear and you can get excited over oh, this bit's my favorite i hope they haven't run out of my size by the time i get my kit <laughs> and that sort of stuff um so i mean beyond belief it does take some people took eight nine hours to yeah. get through it because then you go into you have pictures done you meet some of the social media guys you meet team gb guys and uh, and they they run through how everything's going to work then you we, we pretty much checked out through this supermarket style checkout, like where they, they made sure you had all your kit and then they chucked in a load of freebies. And it's like, why do we need 10 packs of chewing gum? But, you know, it just went in. So it was just a great experience and really kind of was the first big moment that you knew you, you had made made the Olympic Games. And uh, I, I went from trials in Birmingham to kitting out the next day. Of course, because you were automatic, right? Yeah. yeah. And the then straight up, up to Font Rameau. <laughs> so we, oh, we were off. Right? That, that next evening, we were off. And there there was... Uh, so for the endurance guys, we obviously got up the mountain to train at altitude. So Charlie Grice, uh, Chris O'Hare, um, Andy Butchart, who had come from nowhere, you know. Of course, um, yeah. And a whole load of others. Um, we, we went up there and... and it was just like, for a lot of us, it was our first Olympics. We were just like kids running around this mountain. <laughs> Quite literally, that's what we were doing. I was walking and they were running. And, and I was walking with the, with the guys sometimes when they were running. And I was like, I feel in really great shape. Like, I knew I was in, in great shape. I'd set the British record. I demolished the British record earlier in the year. Yeah, let's be crystal clear about and, that. Yeah, it took about two minutes off that nearly. <laughs> Um, or a minute and a half and then took another 45 seconds or something off it in, in Rio itself and, and that race just for me completely changed changed my life even if the BBC did call me Tim Bosworth on the uh, right up at the beginning <laughs> as I say not many people had heard of me <laughs> yeah and then post-performance do you want to just tell us what actually happened afterwards because it's, it's kind of life-changing do you know what I mean yeah well I mean that whole 10 days was from arriving in the village to everyone saying, "Oh, our stuff's getting robbed," and this sort of thing by the cleaners you just, and all oh, sorts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there was a lot of all that. I think palaver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how much of it was true and so on, but uh, obviously I wanted to concentrate on my race. But I also had in my bag uh, quite an expensive engagement ring that that had gone through a lot to get let's just put it this way so where i bought it from you only had 10 weeks to return it if it was the wrong size i was away for 11 weeks from that day of kitting out so i knew i couldn't buy it before i went to the olympics and i'd always i always knew i wanted to propose to my now fiance still fiance um but we haven't got married yet um yeah i wanted to propose at rio because i wanted the olympics to be a shared experience you know for me and him and so I had to work out where, when I could buy this ring, even though I was going to do five weeks up at altitude and then travel to Brazil. You must have and been then stay in Brazil. sweating. So, so Stress. The, what was fun was I knew there was a shop at, uh, in um, Heathrow where I could get this ring. And so I was emailing them backwards and forwards. I needed this ring, this size, and I needed to collect it on this day. 
Oh, so you really like yeah, planned yeah, yeah. everything I, down I'm to like, a T? I, I hope I'm not in a rush or whatever because I need to get in and buy this rig. Yeah, because that's what, obviously because we travel so much, that's the first thing you think about because, you know, you can get delayed coming in and out of the, you know, the airport and stuff. Exactly, so. exactly. And so me, Tom Farrell and Andrew Butcher walk up to this store all kitted out in Olympic <laughs> kicks. You have to travel in Olympic kit. I mean, talk about people staring at us. Me buying this engagement yeah, well, you're superstar, ring. so it's fine. <laughs> but uh, um, so then we we flew in and then I hear all this worry about um, people losing their valuables and all sorts. So I asked Team GB if I could then put the ring in their safe because they had a hidden away safe yeah. the, in the basement or something. And so... After the race had gone all well and I'd finished sixth, despite being ranked 27th and just couldn't believe it and family were over the moon and said, could you let us know if you think you're going to be that good next time so we can prepare ourselves? <laughs> it was a heads up. <laughs> um, they were expecting me to be mid-pack somewhere and um, yeah, we went for, actually I tried to take Harry to uh, Christ Redeemer we, uh, and I, I had it in my the ring in my pocket every time we went out for dinner and so on. And then I thought, it's too busy here. I want it to be special. So we went on to a very blustery Copacabana beach, which looked lovely in the pictures, but goodness me, there was sand blowing in our face. And I thought, I had two mates with me. I said, this is where I want to do it. I think there's like a sewage pipe as well sticking up out at the back of the picture. <laughs> if you go back and have a look, it's not as picturesque as you, <laughs> as, as you think it would be. And yeah, I proposed on Copacabana beach to Harry and thankfully he said yes. Hey. So at that point... You could arguably say 2016, you were on a high. Oh, the performance-wise, the personal best year life of you know. my life. Yeah, beyond beyond belief. So going into 2017, I'll have a drink. <laughs> 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 Need a scotch. <laughs> <laughs> you me, Um Talk us through what you were working towards. You know, because it was you know a big championship. It was home uh, world championships in London. So what was that like for you going in beforehand and obviously afterwards? Yeah. The, um, the aftermath? After Rio, my, my life had completely changed. Um, you know, I, as a race walker, I'd managed to sign a, a contract with a, with a shoe company. And so that was massive. Um, I with, told you this, you're making it sexy. <laughs> well, I try, I try. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, so everything, you know, we had agreed uh, two Diamond League events that year as well. And um, I basically, uh, with help from my old agent, just drafted an email and sent it in and said, could we please have a race walk at the Diamond League? And I was astounded when they responded, yes, let's put it, let's let's do it. So, um, you know, there was load of media hype around the marathon and the walks courses so i did all that media we did the diamond league broke the mile world record and i was sixth in rio so everybody thought you know a medal in london is a huge chance and i thought that and i knew i was in great shape too um we nailed everything going into it so what for what happened was purely my fault getting disqualified at 12k was again going back to the rules of race walking I clearly had both feet off the ground. In pretty much one lap, four judges noticed it. And there's usually eight judges on a one or two K lap. So that's pretty clear that, you know, something went from I was race walking fine to, to not race walking at all. And and I got disqualified. And I just remember walking out onto the course in front of Buckingham Palace. It's one K up and down or two K up and down the, uh, the, the mall to a noise that I've never experience before outside of a stadium like there were three or four people deep uh, surrounding the entire course Every, the, the people would be leaning over the barriers screaming in your face as you went down and it was just the adrenaline I, I, I'm somebody who can really focus but the adrenaline just took over and and my head was just I've got to win I've got to win I've got to win everybody wants me to win it's willing me round to win and so the race plan, the strategy, the, you know, taking on fluids. It was a hot day. Like, it was a mega fast pace. It just all got away from me. And, um, yeah, what what happened happened. And, and the chief judge stepped out in front of me, showed me the red paddle and, and disqualified me. But what was agonising was 
because all the red cards came in in one lap. I had no idea. And people said to me after, oh, you must have known. You must have known you had two cards, three cards, because on the TV we knew. And I said, yeah, but it was eight minutes since I last saw the board, which is by the side of the start-finish line, saying my name and how many cards you have. So in that lap, I'd gone from absolutely fine to being disqualified, and I had no idea about it. So it was absolutely heartbreaking. And it was obviously primetime telly because, you know... The BBC had hyped massive. They weren't just putting this on the red button. This was live Sunday afternoon telly, 30,000 people out watching. You know, this was all about me as well. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I wanted. I wanted of it course. to be all about me. I, this is what I'd worked for. You know, it's seven years on since the commies, and, and everybody in the team knew who I was and knew. Race walking exists. Yeah. And, and. You'd rebranded it basically. Yeah. And, and I am, I wanted to medal. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, all week the media just banged on about how bad as a team we were doing. Mo was the only person who got a medal. And until, <clears throat> and until the relays, we'd had nothing. So, yeah, it was all just, I mean, I, I remember lo- I was locking myself in my room before the race in the days prior, not wanting to go outside, had my phone on airplane mode. You know, just just stressing. I, I I text my coach. Actually, I'm not coming with you. I'm going to go out training on my own now, and just doing such bizarre things, which isn't me. That I never expect experience pressure like it. And I think I built my own pressure as well because people just want to see you do well. At the end of the day, yeah. Whereas I saw that as this is my I, I can't let everybody down. Yeah. And at this point, it was going to be Mo Farah, and if I medal, Tom Bosworth. The only medalist. That's huge. What an opportunity. But maybe I got my name made the other way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so the aftermath of 2017 with you being disqualified, what was that like afterwards? Um, it wasn't... Well, the aftermath wasn't as bad as kind of what's been written in the press recently it took me a long time to realise how much London meant to me and kind of what I'm doing athletics for and so on. Like, I rocked up the next day, did the Birmingham Diamond League, so on. Back in that environment of, of with all the other athletes and so on and and was fine. But then... The Were you was, fine then? Yeah, yeah, I was. Well, because you, uh, I was still focused on, oh, I've got one more race to do and then end of the season can switch off. Okay. That's when, when you switched off, that's when you realised how crap everything, <laughs> everything is, is. Yep. Uh, and everything you had sacrificed and everything you had done and put your family and everybody through and it all gone so terribly wrong. And my behaviour after that was what caused the next pretty much two years, end of 2017 to pretty much end of last year of hell for me and Harry. I started drinking. I I, I, I wouldn't come home. I, I, I didn't care. I didn't care about Harry. I didn't care about my family. I pushed my family members away, my sister away. Um, and by the end of uh, Commonwealth, they, they kept me on the straight and narrow for a while because I was like, right, straight back at it. Got to go medal for commies. And did. Got through that season, but spent two months of that away in Australia, onto China, and didn't get home till mid-May. Home for a few weeks. We got a dog. Everything seemed fine. Went off to Switzerland to prepare for Berlin. Came home from Berlin after a mediocre championships because I was just miserable all summer. And came home and, and tried to kill myself, basically. Yeah, it was, <laughs> there was a lot, a lot going on in such a short space of time. And even when you think back now to that moment, was there anything in particular that, you know, could have led, may have led to, you know, the suicide attempt? So were there any triggers? Was there any signs in particular? Or was it just, you know, a case of you, the drinking, um, the going out and, you know, not contacting anyone, ignoring everyone, just kind of doing things off your own back yeah it just and it was it was denial that there was anything really wrong and was it centered around your performance at london 2012 because even when i'm listening to you now 
you're talking about the whole hype of it, you know, off the back of Rio 2016 and then going in is as not just, you know, one of, you know, the world's best, but a potential medalist. Like that's huge, especially when it's your home championships. And then you didn't even finish. You you got disqualified. So, you know, there's going to be certain signs and triggers that you, that could potentially lead to that. Yeah. I mean, I think just managing the build up to that championships could have been complete, could have changed everything afterwards. Do you know what I mean? Like, I could have, both me and I feel like my team could have seen just how big a deal this was going to be before before it happened. We, like, it, it literally wasn't until the week of London that I really realised how big a home championships is. Because in the UK, we just love sport. Yeah. <laughs> and so I wasn't around for London 2012 in terms of competing. So this was my first taste of it. And it was... Again, I if I was going in where I was going into Rio or Beijing or, or Zurich or anywhere like that, it would have been so different. But this was the first time we were going into a champs as somebody who could be seen as a medal hope. And so this was a learning curve for my coach, for me, for all, all the team. And so I definitely feel like if we had managed that better, the downfall afterwards wouldn't have been so steep and so quick. And so I wouldn't have probably acted the way I did afterwards, which then started this never ending cycle of just so being so low constantly, not wanting to train, not wanting to race, not wanting to go home to Harry, not wanting to. I just was a different person. And I look back now, even just just four or five months ago of how miserable I'd be all the time even going into Doha still miserable all the time I wasn't suicidal or anything like that but I was just miserable as sin and I and I hated what I was doing and I really thought you know Tokyo year is going to be it's it's it it's done I don't want any more to do with it but all Everybody around me has come together amazingly. My my family never gave up on me, and Harry somehow never gave up on me, even though he should have. Um, <laughs> like he doesn't deserve to have been put through what he's gone through for for nine years of being the partner of an athlete, let alone the crap of the last couple of years. And so, twenty nineteen, I was just in constant pain because of a back injury, and and I could barely train once a day, let alone twice a day. And so, all of twenty nine races until Doha was. They were, they were a nightmare. Like I, I was getting there feeling awful, starting off these 20K races feeling atrocious and doing badly or doing badly for where I expected to be. And I just was saying to, I was moaning to Harry, I, was, I didn't want to go away training. I didn't want, I, I couldn't find a way of feeling fit. And so nothing, nothing in life felt like it, it could ever work out unless I just binned it all. But then it was that whole argument in your head, oh, you've worked this hard maybe it'll get better for Tokyo and so on and so on. And by the summer last year, I had a lot of support with the mental health. I'd got myself out of the lowest hole, but athletics then wasn't easy and I just didn't want to be anywhere. And so by the summer last year, I had our trial race and I had a nightmare of a race and I was in agony in the second half and I just threw my shoes off afterwards and I said to my coach, we're not doing Doha. I'm done with all of this until I'm happy and it doesn't hurt anymore. And so we stopped and that's where, and it took, I don't know why it took us or took me so long to really just stop and take a step back rather than try and push through injuries, push through being miserable. And and I just stayed at home with Harry working on the strength and conditioning side of things, working on getting this back fixed, horrible injections and all sorts in my spine and all sorts. It was just awful. And I thought, I don't want to go to Doha. I don't want to do this. But we set up a plan where, and we have done for this year as well. If it goes horrifically wrong, it's not the end of the world we know what's way more important is Harry, the dog, my family, going and representing my country again and again and again. And I'm honoured to have had the career I have so far and just appreciate that and how important that is. And I think that's why Doha went pretty much as well, finishing seventh off, I would say, two and a half weeks training I was happy with. 
eight weeks training back from when we kind of needed to do some training whilst we were trying to fix the back problem. And so it was two years of getting over injuries, getting over my own head. And then after Doha, I was finally able to figure out where my own head was to be happy again. And thankfully, training's going really well. I'm the happiest I've ever been. And we have the right sort of support that everybody should have anyway, in family, friends, uh, and medical at the uh, from British Athletics and UK Sports. So it shouldn't have taken what it did, and it shouldn't have lasted as long as it did. But I, I don't blame anybody or myself for that. You know, listening to you then... And, you know, talking about mental health, it is massive in sport, especially in elite sports. You know, you've been open about your suicide attempt. And why is it that you think that maybe athletes don't speak up about it? Or maybe that it's not taken serious enough? I think with sport, it's such a difficult one because it's almost like you should be enjoying every step. So basically you should be grateful. Yeah, yeah, not necessarily that you should be grateful, but it's a choice to be an athlete. You could just stop. You could just go and get a nine to five job like everybody else who works just as hard. But we are fortunate enough to be in a position where we do have to work just as hard or even that little bit harder for very little or no guaranteed reward. And then because it's such a big deal every few years... At Olympics or World Championships, people get on board with that, whether that's, you know, you get uh, funding from, from the National Lottery or sponsors or, uh, you know, your team needs so many medals to maintain the money that they get, which suddenly means that you can do it full time. And so if that's your full time job to make sure that you deliver medals for somebody else, that's where it now the conversation needs to be had of actually these aren't machines working for us generating enough cars out of the factory every year this is these are human beings trying to generate medals every on one day every four years yeah ultimately that's what you build to and so if one person doesn't do that you can't just chuck them out at the end of it or they will have their own demons to uh, and they will chuck themselves out after those four years and and that is just something it's so hard i think for many people now to get get their head around but but it's so blatantly obvious when you stop and think about it when you've been work if you work for something for 4 years 8 years and that one day and it goes wrong first of all there needs to be some sort of you know leniency and understanding and support from the governing bodies and sponsors and so on and second of all it, it people need to remember you are in the spotlight that like nobody else is if you f- give a bad presentation in your job you're gonna maybe have some regrets and wish you hadn't done that but so many million people aren't watching at home and, and you res- and that presentation is not going to then be broadcast over social media and so on your failures are 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 kept to you you and and your small circle and it can be incredibly disappointing and people work incredibly hard in their job and I just think that is exactly the same being an athlete but we've just got no control over our outcome afterwards you know we don't get a second shot at Olympic Games We, we don't get a second shot at a performance that will mean we can stay doing our job so then, yes, we can go and back and get a nine to five job. But how can you go from one minute representing your country being supported so much to then just expect it's OK for this athlete to try and find a job to pay the bills to to find survive? someone? Yes, yeah, survive. <laughs> and then the motivation to do so without there being any, any sort support. of yeah. support there or, or any or, or the athlete just be absolutely fine with it you know you're, you're a human being if anybody loses their job it's incredibly difficult there is no second athlete job you are an athlete and that's it if you can't do that anymore there are, there's nothing you can do unless you've done something about it when you're you know a teenager or you've studied and 
and done something else, but you're likely not going to have any experience in that. Our life is athletics and that is nine to five training and then nine to five or whatever it is, eight to yeah. eight when you're sleeping, eating you and, and social food, life. And yeah, on, it's just everything is around athletics. And so if a governing body or as a sponsor expects that of you, you have to give the same level of support back to that athlete. Do you think the right things are in place now by the organisations? They certainly are whilst you're in the system, but there's so few people that are in the system that, you know, governing bodies can't support every runner that's half decent. Do you know what I mean? They yeah. cut, they cut, that's not possible. And so... But there's also a duty of care involved because, you know, you have been so vocal about suicide attempt, but, you know, there's been cases over the last couple of years, especially, you know, so many athletes um, have committed suicide because they didn't have, you know, these things in place because organisations were more focused on, you know, the current athletes, the ones who are currently doing well, the up and coming ones, the ones who were meddling. But what about the ones who did all of that? Did XYZ, got all those medals, performed at the highest level, but now they're retired. But then, you know, you have cases where they have committed suicide. Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, it's where do you go? And that and that's where this support needs to be. Majority, the majority of it needs to be for athletes leaving the sport um, who, who have been at a certain level. And there are athletes who have never quite made it, who will also leave the sport and and just needs to be far more open communication within the sport within all sports so then there are there are ways that people can go and or, or people can get help you know it, it, if someone's struggling within the sport it can can be quite obvious and i think people are far more aware and looking out for it now but as you say afterwards yeah uh, well, honestly, it's it's scary. Like, where 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 do many people go? The, these people that you're cheering on, and these people that you see every day in in a team environment or, or a training environment. I I don't have the answers. It, it's 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 just so brutal how an athlete who can also miss out because perhaps other athletes have doped and taken medals and so on. It's 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 such a it's it's been so clear now that sport at the highest level is so so brutal not physically but well both physically and mentally mentally yeah so i where where we go from here will be very very interesting and and, and i think there'll be a, i know there are plenty of people will turn around at home and say well don't do it go go do go and get another job and so on it's, it's not really as not as easy as <laughs> it really that. isn't um because honestly, where do you start? So I hope, I, I, well, I don't hope, I know for sure that, that this is going to be an area where it, a lot will change. And, and I hope that many athletes do get the right support as they're, as they're leaving sport. You know, you can't be expected to just live off government support or, you know, live off what you have done and what you have achieved. Nobody's saying that, but what you have achieved is so, so special just by representing your country. Some sort of better support afterwards is deserved and and, and what you would get in any other job or walk of life in, in this country. Shifting gears slightly. So you are Britain's only openly gay track and field athlete. And, you know, in 2015, you did come out on the Victoria Derbyshire show. So what was that like for you? And was there anything in particular that could have prompted it or would have prompted it? I think LGBT, um, the community uh, and sport just haven't mixed. And I don't think I realised how much of an issue it was um, until I did come out publicly. And I didn't really mean to, if I'm honest. Like I wanted to put a bit of a blog or a video post out and just get it done because I never hid who I was. Um, and... I just thought I want to do this on my terms and that, and that's it because it's sad that it's probably one of the only things you have to do in sport is is come out, come out yeah. if if you want to live openly because regardless it's going to be a new story if even if you just started talking about your partner being 
being a guy if, if you're a guy and so on it's that would suddenly heads would turn and be like wow when did this happen and i hoped five years on that it wouldn't be a subject we talk about but it is still which uh, it leaves you speechless really in in the world we're in but i did it purely selfishly to cover my own back because the olympics were the next year and i wanted to be able to speak openly about harry and, and my relationship and not have any media asking questions about it which I, I knew they would and everybody wants to know everything about their olympians in olympic year it goes crazy yes <laughs> and so it was gonna come out if i didn't come out so <laughs> that's good oh goodness me it just snowballed like the bbc got wind and then suddenly it went on to on to victoria's show and and it was brilliant and i have no regrets doing it at all because overnight just had messages upon messages of people are oh, just wonderful wonderful things people were saying uh, the odd negative but <laughs> that's the world we live in but it was brilliant because 95% of it was very very positive and it just opened my eyes to how little uh, the lgbt community is represented in any sport yeah because obviously aside from yourself the only well few handful of um um, gay athletes that we currently have on um, the Team GB is, you know, Tom Daly. And um, it, do you think that there is a particular fear of why athletes don't come out? Are they scared? Is it because, you know, in this day and age, we do have access to social social media. So everyone is accessible. If you were, let's say, in the closet, like 15 20 years ago we didn't have social media so you could you could hide it as long as you wanted to you weren't going to be outed unless you were a celebrity and you know someone you know saw something and then the press would pick up and then paparazzi so we didn't have that have social media back in those days whereas now it's just you know crazy in terms of like accessibility that we do have so do you think it's a fear that maybe athletes do have yeah, maybe not fear, but you just have to be prepared, like, uh, with such thick skin. And, and this is why I, I'm not surprised that there aren't any out footballers when there are plenty of gay footballers at the highest level. You know, um, the the football clubs are well aware and and support within the football community is, is very good, so I believe, for, for those individuals. But they would never, never come out because it, it literally would be non-stop abuse on social media and i i'm sure with unfortunately within the stadiums as well and okay you can say oh it, you know it's only these trolls online or whatever but it, if that's every day and and every time you're trying to play at the highest level it's going to be incredibly hard and you don't want that on your family and on your friends and on your 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 partner whoever you know you have to have what i say you have to have first of all a reason to come out they may not have a partner they may not have met somebody Secondly, I had the British team. Never, I'd never had a problem. I'd never been out, obviously, but I'm I'm not the most macho guy going either, and so <laughs> I never hid who I was on the Come team on, in Leeds. <laughs> you know, my family knew. I had a supporting partner, my, my supportive coach, and so I had everything sorted. So didn't need, you know, or didn't didn't have any other concerns than just doing this final step of coming out publicly. I didn't think anyone would blink an eyelid. I, I had no idea kind of the outcome of it. Um, and it just shows if little old me would get that response before anything else we've spoken about has happened, any of the su real successful races I had, um, I, I can't imagine what it'd be like for, for other people. And what was it like growing up? You know, did you know from a young age that you were gay? I know you've spoken about, you know, the homophobic abuse that you did um, encounter when you were young, you know, when you were in school. You know, there was a case of you um, getting your head smashed in through a window when it's not even funny. <laughs> it really isn't funny at all. But it's just how, how people are so willing to behave and act on something because of that. What was that like from a young age, you know, suffering that type of abuse? Yeah, I mean, it was it was horrendous. And again, I, I hate I hated school. And but that's where athletics gave me a little bit of a lifeline. And it just meant I could be me and and there was no, it wasn't a team sport. There was nobody relying on me. So I could just go be as fast or slow as I could 
as I wanted to be at an athletics club. And so school was just, just rubbish and, and it, it gave me very thick skin, which is why I guess I'm so able now to speak publicly about my sexuality or, or about mental health and so on and and why so many aren't willing to do that because they, they don't want that attention or, or that sort of abuse or, or, or risk of, you know, it ultimately, even in this country, in some areas, it, it is a risk holding your fiancé's hand if he's of the same gender or whatever, walking down the street. It's, it's sad, but, but re- reality. And so the more of me's there, there are, then the, the less people talk about me, <laughs> I guess. Would you say you've become a big advocate for other athletes who may want to want to have come out um, since you've been outspoken about it? Um, like, do you receive personal messages from athletes who, you know, are scared about coming out, but also be able to, you know, feed off you and seek advice? Because yeah. it's huge, you know, it is, it's massive, you know, coming out about your sexuality. It, it, it breaks my heart to receive messages, especially from young athletes or from athletes in countries where it's illegal or, or not illegal, but incredibly frowned upon to come out. And they say, I wish one day I could have a family and live like you do. And I feel awfully guilty. It's not my fault, but, you know, you just feel feel awful that these people have to hide who they are to their own family and, could ne- and as they see it, will never, ever have an opportunity to be happy. So, so what was that like in Doha, for example? You know, <laughs> the rules and regulations being in Doha, because obviously you were there to perform, but you also know um, it is a Muslim country. So what was that like? Um, uh, you know, wherever we go, we have to respect the laws and the ways of, of that, that country. And so uh, I was g- going to do that. And, and I had one aim, and that was to go and be as good as I could at the World Championships. So it was very difficult in the build-up because all my interviews really did seem to be based about how much I'm going to wave a rainbow flag in Doha pretty much. So (laughs) it was getting a bit, uh, it got so much. I just basically released a statement through British athletics and just said, this is my feelings towards it. It's all on the IAAF to ensure our safety, fans safety and um, uh, the officials, athletes, you know, can, can go there and and be who they are safely because sport doesn't judge sport is just down to how fast you can run how fast you can walk how far you can jump and so on it doesn't matter what color your skin is what religion you are or or who you fancy it 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 doesn't judge and so sport should welcome all and so if you're taking us to a place where that's not the same then those people who decided that have to take responsibility for that um Thankfully, there was it was seemed a very welcoming place, and I had a great time and and had no problem whatsoever and and hopefully maybe the, things will change. But uh, you know, politics aside, I went there as me, and hopefully people around the world saw that. And if they saw me competing and googled me later, they could find out that oh, Tom's gay. And he's competed at the highest level for his country in Doha. And it might give people a little bit of hope. So just going back to, you know, what we were saying about the suicide attempts. I was recently watching the Aaron Hernandez documentary. Um, So, you know, for those who don't know Aaron Hernandez, he was an NFL player for the New England Patriots. He was, um, he went to prison for murder uh, a couple of years ago. And then he um, attempted, no, not attempted, he committed suicide. So, you know, watching it, I didn't know Aaron Hernandez at the time, but, you know, there was so much speculation as to what had gone on. You know, it's still still speculation to this day. And one of the things that the documentary highlighted was the fact that Aaron Hernandez was outed as potentially gay. Uh, he'd had encounters with other men um, and he hid it for so long. You know, NFL, it's very macho, it's very masculine. Um, it's just one of those sports where, again, similar to football, you just can't come out. Or or 
we we presume that no one's out. You know, there's, I think there's been one case. Um, there's been one player who actually came out as gay a couple of years ago. Uh, Michael, I forgot his name. But yeah, he came out and then, he, you know, he was openly gay. You know, this is the life I'm leading. And he never got signed by any team after he did come out. Um, so as much as he was an advocate for, you know, other players who might may potentially be in the closet or scared about the sexuality, um, he also knew the risk. And, you know, the risk was he may never be picked up by another team. Um, so with the case with Aaron Hernandez, do you think um, because of the suicide attempt, you know, being outed, potentially outed, you know, there'd been speculation at the time. Do you think that may have been a case where, you know, it was a kind of similar situation where athletes are scared of coming out, you know, there's a fear factor involved because he was such this amazing, great athlete, you know, NFL is huge. I think it was just another one of those things. Having having watched a documentary in, in, in his case, there's clearly, there was clearly a lot going on behind the scenes, which yeah. again, is you know, the, the team should be looking into this and, and supporting these individuals, it, by the sounds of things, it was quite clear there was a lot going on. A lot. And so if yeah. sexuality on top of that, if that's still a problem, as it is in sport, it's just going to add to everything else, the pressure, when you can't be yourself, when every day you are hiding who you are and, and even having a relationship um, that perhaps you're not entirely happy with because, yeah, you know, it's it's with the wrong gender, but you're doing it for the norm. Um uh, I I can't imagine it. I I know there are so many athletes in the UK within athletics and within other sports that have reached out to me, and and I and I do keep an eye on their social media, and, and in any way I can, I reach out to them whenever I see anything slightly negative come up on their their social media at all, because I worry that you know they they might have. I don't know any any thoughts that will um will will risk you know their life or or, or their happiness in any way because because they can't be who, who they are and, and there's some who are open in their circles and will never come out publicly and that is that is absolutely fine as well. With that in mind, now that we've covered everything, so the highs and lows of Tom Bosworth, was there anything that got you out of where you needed to be? Oof, that's a interesting question. Um, well, I, to be honest, there, there isn't a, a one thing, but there is a one moment. It's only been about seven or so months, but in maybe June or July of last year, my um, the psychiatrist I was seeing after UK Sport had had I'd reached out to British Athletics and UK Sport stepped in. Um, he turned around to me and he said to me, "If you died tomorrow." What would you want written on your gravestone? And right now, do you think you're doing those things? And so we made a list and I wrote down, I wanted to be a good fiancé, a good brother, a good son, a loving dog owner, a great friend. And and I looked at that list and I said, well, I don't think I'm being any of those things at all and that made me stop and think if I did die tomorrow this is what I'm leaving all these people with as my lasting memories the last they knew of me was this and from that moment that changed everything in my life that uh, just everything that I did on a daily basis and it didn't change instantly but it just started the ball rolling for everything in my life to be given such a better purpose to making me happy which will also make everybody around me happy and then we'll see where that takes us and so far I'm the happiest most relaxed I've ever been in my life not since 2017 or whatever but I'm the most productive in training I'm the happiest I've been in myself trying to speak with my family more uh, my relationship with harry is just getting better day by day by day and all from that one moment where i realized that list was not who i wanted to be 
Um, are you excited about the year and your plans leading into Tokyo? Yes, yeah, I, I'm really excited for this year because, as because of that moment, that conversation with my psychiatrist last year, because I am now enjoying everything I'm doing. That's the main thing, isn't it? You know, athletes are human beings and, you know, there's a world, there's a whole world out there aside from competing. And you can enjoy that as well as being an athlete. I think that's what some people lose track of being an athlete is 24-7 being an athlete. But you can also sprinkle in some normal life in there. And so, you know, uh, most people, I'm sure there's some, some facts out there, but somebody who's happy is going to be far more productive and and work probably that little bit more more and work a little bit harder and and probably succeed than somebody who is miserable depressed uh, and just doing it because it's their job you know sport is such a mental thing on race day as well as physical that if your head's in the right place on race day, you're probably going to do better than somebody who might be a little bit fitter, a little bit faster or stronger than you, whose head isn't in the same place as yours. And so I'm, I've am i put in, I'm going to whisper it, the best winter I've ever had. It's just been brilliant training. Uh, I've missed two days all winter since we started back at the end of October. And I'm making time for Harry at the end of the day or getting up with him having making him a cup of tea before he goes to work and we're just really building bridges back with my family as I say I've built things back with Harry and I'm just enjoying everything I'm doing and so it's going really well because I'm enjoying it I think and so I need to remind myself that oh it's still gonna I'm gonna have a bad week here I might have a bad race I might have another DQ another disqualification it's all part of my event it's all part of what I do but this time I'm prepared and I've got the support around me and I'm going to enjoy the process right up to every moment of it and I can still get miserable and I can still moan about how wet it is outside and that's okay but we go back out the next day we make that cup of tea for Harry the next day and we enjoy the weekend when I haven't got training or when I've got a day off we go and do things and and I can look forward to that knowing that I have put all my efforts into training because I've been able to enjoy that too. And I can go off with Harry and be, feel guilt-free and, and be a normal person and then be refreshed. More training, more racing, and uh, let's see what happens in Tokyo. So you could say that your key to happiness, listening to you talk about you know mental health and um, seeking help yourself and having those around you, it seems that your thing for happiness or your key to happiness rather is speaking to people. So you've got Harry, you've got your family, you've got your friends, you've got your dog. (laughs) Yes, she's the best. You have these key people around you to basically help you on the way. And and I think that's massive for athletes because we don't always have that, you know, because we are so focused on working towards a championship, especially when it's Olympic year, because no one wants to miss out on, on going to the game. So what advice would you give for any other athletes who may be going through the exact same thing or something similar? Well, well, firstly, do reach out and get some support, proper medical support if, if you know, you are really struggling. But secondly, it is those around you that make makes life special at the end of the day. If you win a medal, or even if you go to the Olympics, you want your family there at the side of the road or the side of the track. If they're not there, it kind of doesn't really matter, in my opinion. Uh, I wouldn't want to do what I do without them being there, or if they can't make it, them being at the end of the phone as soon as I finish. And so building those relationships and, and maintaining them just by doing the little things, a cup of tea in the morning, a, a dinner out at the end of the week, those little things just can make your life with other people so much nicer. And because, you know, we can't, we do sacrifice a lot of our lives. Making a little cup of tea here, going out for dinner, going to the cinema, making time for seeing your mum, whatever it is, that little gesture regularly suddenly becomes a big gesture and it makes you feel good. It makes them feel loved. And then when you're away weeks on weeks or they're watching you on telly smash it, they know that you're going to come home to a loving relationship 
happy family and one that's supported and whether it goes right or wrong you know that's what you're going back to and are you a massive book reader as well i'm i'm not at all however i have this is one of my new things that i'm doing that isn't athletic so i'm not the strongest reader but i've just read um this is going to hurt which is by a well he quit he's a nurse I thoroughly suggest reading this. It's a nice, short, easy read. And it's basically put all his uh, notes as a trainee doctor into a book. And um, there's some incredible stories, incredible stories in there, which, again, puts your life into perspective. And um, that's... Sometimes it's about looking at the bigger picture, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so, and yeah, reading books is just something else that I'm trying to do, which isn't easy, but uh, (laughs) I'm enjoying it. Good, good. It's been so fun having you on the podcast today. Um, where can people follow you? On socials, on... Um... At Tom Bosworth on everything, tombosworth.com. Find out more and yeah. Um, well, thank you for having me. Thank you for being on Hidden Greatness Podcast and good luck for this season. Thanks, Sam. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe and like. Tell a friend to tell a friend about Hidden Greatness, which is available on all streaming platforms. Catch you on the next episode. Bye.